This is Consumed, a scrappy little podcast about life and flavor. I'm your host, Jamie Lewis, a food and wine writer on California's Central Coast. Season two is sponsored in part by Slow Life Magazine. Slow Life shares the happenings, stories, and personalities that bring San Luis Obispo County to life. I love writing the food column for the magazine, meeting the people behind my plate, and sharing it with readers. Check your mailbox every other month for inspiring stories about folks you want to get to know, places you want to see, and flavors you want to taste. To learn more about how you can get Slow Life delivered to your door, visit slowlifemagazine.com. Libby Parker is a registered dietitian in San Luis Obispo, and her recent book called Permission to Eat explores the rampant issue of eating disorders, particularly among college students. Let me read a part from her introduction. She writes, I'm writing this to let you know that I understand what's going through your mind, the calorie counter that won't turn off, a headache that comes from not having healthy food at a party, the constant worry that others are judging my plate, my body, me. Worry about the binge that I think I will be able to control this time. The drive to see how far I can take it. I don't wish that life for you. Please, please run out and get her book. Again, it's called Permission to Eat, and it's available for just $15.99 on Amazon, and it's rated a solid five stars. Libby also has a thriving practice in Slow, where she meets privately with clients to bring peace and healing to their relationships with food and their bodies. We discussed why she thinks San Luis Obispo might suffer from a little bit of cognitive dissonance, why she decided against studying to be a veterinarian, and why bread has the power to break people free. I'm all for that. Here's Libby Parker. Hi, Libby. Hello. It's so good to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. So we, um, you got in touch with me because you have, um, you have a book out called Permission to Eat that you can, when did that come out? Came out in June. Okay. Wow, that's that's right. It's yeah, really fresh. Really new. Yeah, and so um, I was, I've had a few people interested in coming on, and I didn't always say yes because I don't know. There's something about what you brought to me that was very compelling. Um, you are, do we call you a dietitian or a yes, nutritionist? Dietitian. Okay. Is there a difference? There is. Okay. Can I talk about that? Please. Because that's something that is um, among the dietitian community is a big. Um, I don't even have a word for it thing. <laughs> is it like um kind of a polarizing or it's important to certain people? It's important. People? It's um it's very different in terms of educational level mm-hmm. and um it's it's kind of like the difference it, it could be on different levels but kind of the difference between like a life coach and a psychologist. Okay. Yeah. So there's a different level of education involved and um just requirements. So literally anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. Mm -hmm. You're a nutritionist. My dog is a nutritionist. Like anyone, Mm. there's no, uh, in the United States, there's no legal um, acknowledgement around the term nutritionist. Hmm. So Hmm. it could be someone like registered dietitians are also nutritionists. Mm -hmm. It could be someone with a college degree in nutrition. It could be someone who just likes food and calls themselves a nutritionist. It could be Mm. someone who took a, you know, weekend online course. You know, there's no um, 
credential There's around. No, yeah, yeah, right. No certification or anything. So to be a registered dietitian, it's pretty extensive. It's um, pretty much the same level of education as like a marriage family therapist mm-hmm. or a nurse practitioner. We're kind of like considered maybe a mid-level um, in terms of like, you know, doctor would be a high level and then mm-hmm. nurse practitioners would be a mid-level and a medical assistant would be a lower level mm-hmm. in that leveling. Um, so we have to complete um, a bachelor's degree in nutrition and dietetics mm-hmm. and then get into a highly competitive internship, which is a less than 50% acceptance rate. Um, Do a year or it's anywhere from six months to two years, depending on the program and how quickly they compact all the hours into a dietetic internship where we're doing supervised practice, very similar to a medical residency. And and they can position you anywhere in the U.S.? Okay. Um, so I was fortunate enough to get my internship through Cal Poly. Oh, right on. Um, that's how I moved out here. I'm originally from Minnesota. Okay. Yes. The internship is very similar to a medical residency in that we are working under other dietitians, learning from them, getting supervised hours in different locations. Um, I think I had 12 different rotations in my year of internship. Then we study and sit for our dietitian exam, which is through the commission on dietetic registration. It's a minimum of 140 questions on all areas mm. of nutrition and food service. And so similar to a, an exam that nurses take to become board certified. Wow. And I know that's rigorous. Yes, it's, it is a thing. Yeah. Um, and my husband's also a nurse, so I know like kind mm-hmm. of equivalencies here too. And um, after that, we, are, we become registered. And then we have continuing education that we need to keep up every five years. It's a minimum of 75 hours, including um, a certain amount of ethics training that we go through. And now new grads are coming out required to have a master's degree as well. Whoa, really? Yeah. So we're really um, stepping this up, proving that we are the nutrition experts. Right. And so... They also added on, so it used to be just registered dietitian. They've added on, we can choose to be called registered dietitian or registered dietitian nutritionist. Mm. And they did that, I think, to make it easier for consumers to understand. But those of us who are already grandfathered in are like, oh, that just kind of makes it sound not as... And it kind of muddies (laughs) the water too. Yeah. Um, But they were trying to really make the statement that all registered dietitians are nutritionists, Mm. but not all nutritionists are registered dietitians. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking of the first thing that came to mind is um, in Europe, there are um, designations for wines that are of a specific place. And they have this, you know, DOCG in Italy, AOC in France. But here we have nothing like that. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people will say it's like private reserve cab, which in U.S., parlance it means nothing um so anybody can say you know private reserve so Mm -hmm. okay so you are the aoc docg (laughs) of of food i am the true champagne not the sparkling (laughs) wine (laughs) you know wine i do i studied abroad in italy oh you did where did did you study uh we were mostly in florence and it was a sustainable food. oh my gosh Sustainable Food Systems of Italy was the course that I took there. So we were going out to farms and learning about like biodynamic winemaking. And we went to Parmesan cheese makers and balsamic vinegar makers. uh, Yeah. Whatever they're called. In Modena. Yes. So we were all over. So we were in Parma and Modena. And um, we went to some of the huge wineries like Castillo Bonfi. And it was was a gorgeous trip. And that's in Montalcino. Right, Bonfi. Oh, wait. 
I think part of part of them is there. I don't That's remember. Huge... That was about ten years ago. I don't remember. <laughs> oh my gosh! As anybody listening will just roll their eyes anytime someone says that they were in Italy. I just. It's like, let's just only talk about that, could we? <laughs> My husband and I spent six months there on organic and biodynamic oh, farms nice. as woofers. And so. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a rough job. It was a rough job. There were, uh, I think we visited altogether eight farms. Four were atrocious and four were just magic. So, you know, you get, mm-hmm. it's the luck of the draw. Yeah. So anyway, um, what did being in Italy actually teach you about food in terms of the way that Italians eat. I mean, how does that influence your work now? Ooh. Um, I have not thought about that question at all, to be honest. Um, I, I think this is actually going to lead into what we were going to talk about, yeah. though, of while I was in Italy, I was pretty well in my eating disorder. Mm. And so it was very difficult because, you know, our class was all about food and we were going to restaurants and eating as a group. And my roommates and I were going out for gelato every day. And I was terrified. And I'm like, I can't read the calories on anything. Mm. And it, it actually made the experience rough. Like, cause even though I was in this gorgeous place and the food was amazing, like, don't mm. get me wrong. I still enjoyed it, but I was anxious the whole time. And when we were eating at home, I was, you know, my roommates were buying these, you know, fresh rustic loaves of bread to eat. And I was going and like figuring out the Italian food labels and like, mm. okay, this loaf of bread has the lowest calories and it tasted awful. <laughs> like Seriously. Yeah. And their, and their labeling is also completely different mm-hmm. from ours. I mean, they, they only have to say certain things. They don't have to, we have a very rigorous, mm-hmm. you know, you have to list out what the percentage of a 2000 calorie diet would be and all of the things. Yeah. And theirs is all based on a hundred grams of the food, right. which could be who knows what portion size yeah. where we're like, okay, a half a cup. You yeah. Know? So it's, um, you know, because again, I was really obsessed at that point. I knew how to read that stuff, but mm. it was like, okay, per 100 grams, which one of these has the lowest amount of calories? And it was just very obsessive. Mm, and, misery when you're on a trip. Yeah. So it was when we were out and about, I was good about eating and being okay with it. But when we were making food back in our apartment, I was like, okay, like I need to like, you know, make up for all this other stuff I did, yeah. which now I teach my clients, like you don't have to make up for that. You don't need to count calories mm. because I know the hell that you're going through in your brain when that's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. How did that, how, what's the trajectory of your, um, disordered eating? When did it, when did you first notice it? Yeah. Um, I think it probably started my senior year of high school. Um, as most people will tell you with an eating disorder story, it was, I was a little overweight as a kid, not, not probably technically, but I was, Mm -hmm. my friend called me chunky and Mm -hmm. that really stuck with me. And, um, the summer before my senior year of high school, I was doing this amazing program through 4-H where we were performing at the state fair every day. And we had this camp where we were learning the show and I do a lot of musical theater and we were just doing so much exercise that I started to naturally lose some weight. Mm. And then I come home from the summer and I'm like, okay, it feels good to move my body because I had been a pretty lazy person up until that point. Mm. Um, So I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep doing this. And then I started reading, um, you know, like the women's magazines and like, oh, okay, I'm going to start making some healthier choices, which did innocently start out like most people with smarter choices. Instead of eating a row of Oreos, I'd eat an apple for a snack. A row of Oreos. God, that that rings a bell. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Uh You know, it's like now I'm back to where I can do that. And I'm like, 
I don't care and my body doesn't mm-hmm. change. But mm-hmm. at that point, it was like, okay, this is probably a smarter choice. And so it started out innocently. And then it just started getting more and more restrictive through um, that last year of high school and first year of college. I, I wasn't necessarily aware of calories or dieting at that point, but I was just starting to swap things out and I started eating less and less and I started moving more and I was upping my dance, especially when I got into college, I was dancing a lot. Mm. Um, at Cal Poly? I was not. I was in Minnesota. Oh, Actually, okay. my first two years of college, I was in Wisconsin. Okay. And then I switched majors, and that's a whole nother Right. Thing. Uh, as so as I, that I, always is. Yeah. Yes. Well, actually, um, as with a lot of people who become dietitians or therapists, that eating disorder really chose my major for me. Yeah. So I started out pre-veterinarian. Um, I was going to be a vet with a musical theater minor. And because I got so obsessed with food and calorie counting and nutrition and reading all that, I was like, oh, there's a job helping people lose weight. Mm. Sign me up. So I switched to a nutrition major. So common. Yeah. I mean, even in my layperson position, I see how common that is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like going back, it's like, oh, I probably would have actually chosen a different major if I were to go back and do it over again. But I've gotten to a place where with my own business, I'm doing something that feels really meaningful to me. Mm. So I do love what I do now. There's totally a place for it, too. Yeah. But I I probably would have chosen a different major if I hadn't had that experience. Yeah. And I would have had a completely different career path that I would have also been very happy with. So. Yeah. And pre-veterinary with a musical theater minor. I have never heard that combo before. (laughs) That's a good combo. Well, the, and I tell everyone this story too, because it was just so poignant. Um, There was a moment in that first semester of college before I even came on this nutrition idea that do I really want to get called out in 3 a.m. in the middle of a blizzard to go stick my arm up a horse's butt? (laughs) I mean, Hmm. who wouldn't? What can I do Sounds like a good time. (laughs) You know, because <laughs> I was going to be equine veterinarian, which meant oh. large animals. I would be on call. I'd be going out to farms. I, you know, was going to school in Wisconsin. I was from Minnesota. Like it was going to be bad weather. It was going to be all hours of the day. I wanted a normal job. Mm. I was good at science. So I'm like, okay, like how can I use all these science classes that I have already towards something else? And that yeah. was also part of choosing the nutrition major. Yeah. Wow. So, um, I, I know you probably don't want to go too far into why you switched, um, mm-hmm. but was did it have something to do with the major switch? Going from uh, Wisconsin over to Minnesota? Yes. Okay. Yes. They didn't have a nutrition major at my school. Wow. So you even moved yes. states. Wow. Yeah. And it was actually equidistant from my parents' house, both the schools. Mm, okay. It was about a 45 minute drive. So it wasn't like a big switch other than I went from a very tiny town with um, the school was population 6,000 students oh. to um, Minneapolis, where it was, you know, the population of students was like 60,000 in a town of millions. Yeah. And so that was a big shift, but I actually really loved it. Mm. I found out I'm actually a city person at heart. Isn't that funny? You may think that you're one thing. Yeah. And that can change over a lifetime too, I think. You know, you are into cities that maybe when you're older and into country when, I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm happy in both, so. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So when you switched majors, I'm just thinking, um, how did you wind up in slow? Does that have anything to do with, maybe there was a program here that you wanted to go to? Yes, it was the dietetic internship okay. that I was talking about. So after I got my bachelor's degree in Minnesota, I applied for internships and I got placed out here. Okay. So I moved out here with the intent that it was 
probably going to be for a year. And I pretty much had a job lined up back home. Mm. But then I met a guy and we got married. Oh, <laughs> so I ended up staying. He was local. Hey. So, yeah. And what's the culture difference, would you say? And how long have you been here? I've been here almost eight years. Okay. You're, yeah. I mean, that's a long time yeah. for around here. So what's the difference, would you say? What's your number one difference between there and here? Mm. Um, besides the weather. Yeah. For better <laughs> or for worse, too. Yeah. That's a great question. I The thing that keeps coming back to my mind, it might not be the biggest difference, but, you know, I came out here right after Oprah was saying that this is the happiest town in the U.S. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's so exciting. And I've noticed both personally and just among people I know and my clients that the rates of depression are extremely high That's here. Right. Yep. So for being, you know, a sunny place that, you know, theoretically wouldn't have seasonal affective disorder mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be the happiest town and all this fresh food and stuff, people are really depressed. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, well, among my clientele who are typically having body image issues, I think a lot of it has to do with, they don't feel like they can meet the expectations of being a Californian. Mm -hmm. So we're near the beach. Everyone wants that beach body. Fitness culture is huge here. I think that's a big difference. I mean, people work out in Minnesota, but people work out. Yeah. It's a lifestyle. (laughs) Yeah. It's everyone is, you know, constantly in athletic clothes. And, you know, if you're not doing three hours a day, you're not doing enough. And oh my gosh. And I think that might be one of the biggest differences in terms of what I see professionally anyway. Yeah. There's lots of little differences, but I think it's interesting that, um, how important the body is to the mind, uh, and vice versa. We, I can't remember who it was. Somebody was telling me that it was, um, maybe Descartes when all of a sudden there's a split between you know, a holistic view of the body, that there used to be this understanding that it was all of you was all of you. And then when I think it was Descartes came along and said, I think therefore I am, um, it changed to being a brain and then a body separate. And, um, I'm getting so heavy right now and I'm also (laughs) way out of my depth. Um, I I love it. Don't know much about philosophy, but here, the fact that so many people are body obsessed, it's very, um, I guess it works its way into people's mental health is what I'm trying to say. It creates this pathway to really serious, um, just almost like mutation, brain mutation. Mm-hmm. That is not a real thing, but <laughs> but it changes people's, maybe the, the mm-hmm. makeup of their brain. It does. So, you know, what we continuously do, we're rerouting neural pathways and making connections stronger or weaker based on, you know, what we habitually do with our thoughts and our actions. And also if our thoughts and our actions are, you know, incongruent with each other, we're creating this thing called cognitive dissonance. And so our brain doesn't like being in that dissonance and wants to bring those two things together. So Mm. I actually like to use that with clients to try to get them out of their eating disorder because the eating disorder is a mental health problem that manifests physically or behaviorally and can turn into medical complications. Mm -hmm. So if their brain is in this place where they, you know, can't love themselves, they're having trouble with, you know, any belief system that we want them to get to, to be in a healthy mindset, sometimes changing the actions first, even if they can't get their brain on board, if we can keep their actions going, like if they're afraid to eat bread and we get them eating bread on a regular basis, the brain hates that that's happening. So, but if we can continue to like, even though your brain is not happy with you, if you can keep eating bread, eventually the brain is going to want to get over because it doesn't like being in that dissonance. So it's going to come along and be like, okay, 
we ate the bread and nothing bad happened. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. So I like to use that um, thing that's actually making their life very difficult in ways that can bring it back over and actually help them heal. Um, if you are almost prescribing that somebody eats bread mm-hmm. because that is their point of fear, mm-hmm. does anybody ever go overboard and does it ever trigger a binge for people? It can. So whenever someone is denying themselves either a specific food or just, you know, a certain number of calories in general, they're not meeting their needs, it can cause a lot of problems. So there's this thing called the binge restrict cycle. So if you've been restricting something, again, whether it's total calories or a particular food Mm -hmm. and you're denying that, it creates a feeling of hunger or denial, it often leads into overeating or binging. And sometimes what someone perceives as a binge is really just eating more than they planned on, Uh, but it's not truly a binge. Right. It's a mental warp. Yeah. Because I've had people who, you know, especially with anorexia, they eat, you know, a cup of cereal and, oh my God, I binged. And, you know, for anyone else in the entire world, that's not a binge. That's like a a snack. snack. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it totally is a snack. Yeah. (laughs) Like that is not a full meal. Um, But they're like, oh my God, I hate cereal. You know, so something like that could happen. But whether it's perceived or a true binge, that creates a lot of distress, guilt, shame, which makes someone feel that they need to restrict or do better or Mm. over-exercise or purge or whatever it is to try to make up for that perceived or real binge, which again, leaves those feelings of deprivation. That's it. And that deprivation again will lead to that binging or overeating. So we get this cycle of binging and restricting or purging by some means, compensating. Mm -hmm. And everyone thinks that the, the place we need to try to fix this from is, oh, we must stop the binging because that's the problem. No one wants to binge. It's like, oh my gosh, I get so guilty Mm. and shameful when I eat too much. So I must have to stop the binging. And this is when people go on diets or say, I'm not going to eat these foods or I'm not going to eat after a certain time or, you know, whatever, all the, all the bazillion crazy food rules that are out there that actually don't work. Yeah. Which again, leads to those feelings of deprivation. So it's, you know, they're setting themselves up for this binge Mm -hmm. essentially. So once we remove the restriction or compensation piece of it, and they're able to start allowing those foods back in, the binging goes away completely. So somebody has to be, they have to really trust you and they have to be really desperate, I bet. Yeah. Um, So it is, it's a lot of building trust for that part of it because if you don't fully commit to it, you're going to stay stuck in this cycle because you could do it for a day. And let's say, I'm just going to keep using bread as the example because yeah. everyone's afraid of carbs right now. Carbs are wonderful. Your body needs them. Please eat them. Yes. Um, yes. But it's it's such a big one. So let's say someone has not been eating bread for months. And I say, okay, the way you're going to stop feeling controlled by bread is if you start including it every day. And so for a day, they're like, okay, I'm going to do this. And they, you know, eat some toast at breakfast and they're like, okay. And then at lunch they have a sandwich and then they're like, oh my gosh, the bread tastes so good. And they eat the whole loaf of bread and then they freak out and they're like, I have no control around bread. And so they say, I'm never touching bread again. That's what's creating that distrust in the body. Mm. So if they were to instead say they ate that whole loaf of bread and they were to give themselves some grace and say, okay, 
that happened. I haven't eaten bread in a long time. And it you're tastes... not freaking out either. No. You're like, okay. Yeah. Like I expect that for most people it's going to happen and mm. it might happen for a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Like this is not a one and done sort of thing for most people. Some people it is. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are able to just start incorporating things again and feeling that they have permission and are totally fine. Mm-hmm. Other people will have these binges for a couple of weeks or maybe a month and then they're, they start trusting their body again. Mm. But if they, you know, eat that loaf of bread or whatever and say, okay, that happened. I haven't had it in a while. It tastes really good. And they go on with their day. They try not to think about it anymore. And the next day they get up, they have bread again. Maybe they eat the whole loaf again. Maybe they eat half a loaf and they're, you know, it's a little bit better. Maybe they do just have a couple pieces. Mm. And if they keep doing that every day and not trying to not get worked up about it and no one doesn't get any worked up about it. Well, like, I mean, you know, it's, it's a coping it's, it's mechanism. Stressful. It yeah. is. It is exactly. Um, so, but if they keep allowing themselves to have it, eventually they get to a point where, oh, I can have bread whenever I want. Mm-hmm. Bread does not have control over me. So I can have a slice now. I cannot. I can have it tomorrow. I can eat a whole loaf of it right now if I want it, but I don't really feel like I need a whole loaf of it right now. And they're starting to really listen to their body. Hmm. And that is when that cycle is broken. Yeah. I want to take a minute to share about one of my supporters on the Consumed podcast. If you're listening, you're probably a fan of good food and good people, right? Well, coming soon, the San Luis Obispo Public Market at Long Bonetti Ranch will bring fresh flavor, fresh faces, and fresh inspiration to the Central Coast. Let me tell you, this is going to be a very big deal. Long Bonetti Ranch was established in 1880 and is named after George W. Long and Florino Bonetti. The ranch housed horses and dairy cows and produced grain, veggies, and flowers. The Slow Public Market will honor the Long and Bonetti family legacies with local purveyors of different foods and ingredients, ranging from a brewery and a cheese shop to tacos, coffee, ice cream, juices, spirits, and my personal obsession, bao buns. There's lots more to come, and it's all coming very soon. To learn more about the Slow Public Market or for information on becoming a merchant there, visit slowpublicmarket.com. As you're talking, I'm thinking about, um, I mean, I've been pretty open. I've had some disordered eating for sure. Um, I, and then I got into food writing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Big coincidence there. Um, and I was getting very, uh, I was training for half marathons at one point. I guess my daughter was probably like two years old and I was ready to, I think it was sort of a declaration. I'm going to inhabit my body again and not just, you know, I was, I had been nursing up to that point for five straight years. Um, so I was training for these half marathons and someone told me, you know, you should really go gluten-free for, if you're training, uh, because of, inflammation and all that. And so I did. And, you know, I'm not super in touch with my body with the way that I feel. And so I was kind of, I'm very suggestible. So I thought, Hey, I'm feeling better. And I'm running these halves. And, you know, I was waking up so, so creaky in the morning. Mm -hmm. And of course, because I'm an obsessive person, I'm running, you know, sometimes 11, 12 miles a day and, um, and sacrificing a lot in terms of life, uh, to be able to do mm-hmm. that, sacrificing gluten. And then eventually I started to, uh, give up grains altogether and, you know, bending over backwards to make 
almond flour pancakes and things like that. And let me be clear, I'd never been diagnosed with celiac disease, Mm -hmm. any kind of intolerance. I was just doing it because it, I thought it was the right thing to do. And I'm a rule follower. So, um, I was assigned a story for edible slow magazine to write about sourdough bread from breaking bread bakery. (laughs) I know where this is going already. (laughs) It's so, and at the time I was like, why would I even take this? They had never assigned me a story before. I'd always kind of come up with my own ideas, but something about it. I thought, you know, the science of sourdough is really interesting. I'll just go. I will smell the bread and that will be enough. And so she's laughing quite hard at me. Um, So I showed up and of course the people are amazing. Mark is just an amazing baker and an amazing man. Mm -hmm. And so he took me behind the screen and we're talking about croissants and we're talking about sourdough Mm. and all his different varieties. And also baguette is a specialty of his. And he sliced, I never said anything. He sliced off this piece of sourdough and he handed it to me and it's like warm and aromatic Mm. and pretty sure I put my nose on it and he's like what are you doing what are you doing (laughs) and I said well I'm off I'm off grains and this is one thing I forgot to mention is the story was about he wanted to debunk the gluten intolerance myth oh my gosh and here I'm writing this story and so anyway um I said, you know what? You're right. I'm just going to try. I'm just going to do it. And I'm so disciplined. I can say no to something for forever. But when there's social pressure and somebody's staring at me and handing Mm -hmm. me something they've worked so hard to achieve, I took a bite of it. And if Mark's listening, he'll crack up because I started to weep. Like, and of all of the breads, a sourdough, which has that very specific, Mm -hmm. you cannot replicate that flavor in any other way. Mm -mm. It was so, so good. And I started very slowly to reintroduce. And I'll tell you, that's the healthiest I've ever felt was when sourdough, I I don't know if technically this is correct, but it felt like it was kind of like scouring the inside of my arteries and veins. Like there was something about it. It was, it was taking off sloughing things that needed to go. And now I think almost every day I have a slice of something good. That's what I try mm-hmm. to make a point of is it's not crappy stuff. Yeah. I try to eat the good stuff and treat yeah. it with respect. Um, but I have not ever felt better and I eat bread. And I should also say Libby's wearing a shirt with a bagel on it. So here we are clearly <laughs> celebrating, <Yes>. celebrating <laughs> the carbs. Yeah. Um, Sorry to take it in that. Oh, no, I loved that. And just for everyone listening to, I think that was a real, I'm really curious. I want to read your story now because the person who came up with the idea of gluten sensitivity Mm. actually retracted his statement after he did more research. Is that right? So I do believe that some people feel better eating less grains or processed stuff. Sure, I can get behind that. Mm -hmm. But the true gluten sensitivity, unless you have celiac disease, it's really not a true thing as it's been proven so far. And there's been pretty extensive research done on it. Yeah. So if you have celiac disease, of course, you need to exclude gluten because that's an autoimmune disease and can really mess with you but for everyone else if you have not been diagnosed with celiac disease 
eat bread, eat the grains that you like. Try. It's try what, you know, yeah. like feel out what makes you exactly. feel good. Exactly. And some things are going to feel better than others. And maybe you like it prepared in certain ways. I know sourdough is definitely gentler on the system because mm. it has um, more bacteria in it that are helping you digest. Yeah. So that's usually a good one for people who can't have like white bread or wheat bread. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm thinking about Flower House Pizza downtown mm. San Luis Obispo. They do at least a 24 hour ferment on their mm. doughs. So you, and they, they talk, actually, that's one of my guests was, um, Jessica and Alberto came on, but that's a very gentle, um, and also very Italian way to prepare. I mean, Mm -hmm. he is Italian, so it's gentler. It's not as heavy, but I, I mean, I recognize that not everybody's going to feel good on that. I happen to feel very good on that. Um, so yeah, again, listening to your body and not dictating based on either a fad or what somebody tells you. Yeah. Um, I'm, I met an athlete, I was doing a job and I met a professional cyclist who I told him I was off grains and he's like, Oh, and he was also, I think a nutritionist, not a dietitian, but he said, girl, you got to try that again. Like you can't, he said, I, as, as a cyclist, I can't not eat grains. Yeah. Endurance athletes would be very difficult to make it without grains because you just have to have that constant intake of carbohydrate to keep your glycogen stores up so you're mm-hmm. not hitting the wall. Yeah. Um, did you, what was the point for you that switched everything? When did it become healthy thinking? Mm. Uh, so yeah, skipping ahead. So it was pretty much end of college for me. So all through college, I was pretty restrictive. Because I was in a nutrition major, I knew that there I shouldn't go too low in my calories. My my whole thing was calorie counting. So I ate everything, but I was very like, I need to stick between this much and this much. Such madness. Um, yeah, so it was constant calculations in my head. Um, but I think what really fixed it for me, and this is not everyone's story, but being a nutrition major and having amazing professors who were telling me things like sugar is not evil and you do need to eat this much. And this is what an eating disorder is. And, you know, all learning about metabolism and all the different things that our body uses food for, as well as what happens if we're not getting everything and nutrient deficiencies. So some of it got a little hypochondriacal for a while there, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. ultimately going through the nutrition major was what worked me out of it. That's amazing. So by the time I graduated, I was on my last legs of it. And by the time I was done with my internship and had been eating, um, all these fresh made meals with my, um, at that time, fiance's family who loved to cook, I I couldn't keep it up anymore because I couldn't count everything. Yeah. (laughs) And so that was kind of the last thing. Like, I think mentally I was in a pretty good place before the calorie counting stopped because that's a hard thing when you've gotten in the habit of it and you know what's in everything. Totally. Like I could look at a banana and tell you exactly how much was in that. And, you know, Mm. so it was, I had to start just letting go and trusting. Mm -hmm. And then I started, you know, learning from other people and reading books and learning about, you know, intuitive eating and trusting your body. And that's when it really truly clicked for me. And I was able to let go of everything. Yeah. Um, you said that it has everything to do with mental health. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is it mental is. illness, right? Yes. Yeah. And cognitive dissonance. I didn't know anything about that probably even as recently as a year ago. 
And that's come up a lot where your brain is trying to hold on to two different things. It's almost Mm -hmm. like there's reality and then there are the stories that we tell ourselves and they can't coexist for long. Exactly. Yeah. Um, What do you say are some of the common threads with your clients, people who come to you in their story? Like you said, like a lot of people, maybe not necessarily overweight, but maybe a little bit mm-hmm. over what you, what the norm is. I don't, you can tell, I don't even know. Yeah. What are the safe words to say here? <laughs> like I was going to say pudgy, but that even feels cruel. You yeah. Know? Well, I think, um, yeah, it's really hard, especially talking about other professionals because my clients are very candid about, they'll say, Oh, someone's called me this. And you know, mm-hmm. I think, you know, and Oh, my eating disorder voice is telling me I'm this, and, you know, but among professionals we're like, we, you know, the S- F word. Fat, yes, you know, it's fat just, or obesity. Yeah. Like that's becoming a thing that people don't want to use that term anymore. Yeah. Um, there's a podcast I listen to that I love. It's um, Food Psych with Christy Harrison. Mm. And she will not use the word obesity in her show. Like if mm. someone says it, she will beep it out. Why does she do that? Because it has become such a negative connotation. And among some professionals, I don't know where I land on this yet, mm-hmm. even because we we do technically have a way of quantifying that, but BMI is not a great benchmark indicator or whatever you want to call it. It's, you know, antiquated. It doesn't Mm. tell us the whole picture of health. So to give someone a, you know, diagnosis for lack of a better word based on a BMI that might not be a great indicator of health Mm -hmm. doesn't seem helpful. Yeah. So to, you know, say someone has a BMI of such and such number and to call them obese, they might be in perfect health. Maybe that's where their body is meant to be. So by using that word, it's stigmatizing. Yeah. Just like, you know, using fat. A lot of people are reclaiming the word fat and Mm -hmm. there's a a big um, fat acceptance movement going on now. So it really depends on the person. I do try to avoid those words among clients and people that I feel might be sensitive to it. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't use them in everyday talk, but I feel since we're having this conversation, it, it can be helpful to understand why people do or don't use those words yeah. it might be the word that somebody understands too yeah you know just a, a lay person I guess yeah did you listen to do you ever listen to this American Life the podcast occasionally okay well there's one you've got to look it up called um tell me I'm fat is the name of the episode okay and there are three I think three stories in that and one of them uh is about a woman who I think she ended up having bariatric surgery lost a lot of weight and then ended up getting noticed by men and fell in love with someone and they got married and they have this kind of late night conversation that she happens to record. Um, cause she's a radio journalist. And he says at one point, well, I feel like the you from before he didn't know her when she was, I, I guess I'll just say large. Um, He says, the you from before, I feel like that's not the real you. And it comes up, I'm remembering now, it comes up because she says, if you had met me when I was bigger, do you think we still would have ended up hanging out and falling in love? And he said, I mean, maybe not. And that rocks her world. She starts to think about, well, what does that mean? Am I really the real me, in quotes, when I'm little, littler, or am I always the real me? It's such, it, it was oh. a real mind bender. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somebody else on, an, in another story was talking about reclaiming the word fat and just, yeah. she calls herself fat. Um, and she talks about her community of, of folks who really understand that and they are embracing it. 
anyway, that's a great episode, especially for anybody working in food and body obsession. Yeah. And those two really go hand in hand, don't they? They do. Yeah. Um, Oh, I have so much I want to say about all of I'm this. I'm sure you do. I know. So, oh, I think that's such a great thing that she came up with. You know, is it the real me when I'm in this smaller body or am I always me? And I think that's something that we all need to really take home is that we're always ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it is those stories that we tell ourselves that make the difference in our self-confidence and our feelings of self-worth. Mm-hmm. I was actually just seeing a study. I think it was yesterday I was reading this that 80% of heterosexual men are totally fine with women in larger bodies. 80%? Like they, yeah. They would date them. Wow. Yeah. So oh, it's really... That makes me love men. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really not... I, women, are, I think, are losing weight for other women. They're not, I agree. They're not doing it to get a guy, even if they tell themselves that, because guys don't care. Nope. I think... Um, did you see the movie... Uh, oh, what is the one with Julia Roberts? She goes to Italy and... Uh, eat, pray, love. Eat, pray, love. Yes. You know, she's like, just eat the pizzas. You know, any guy mm. ever cared that you, you know, take your pants off, you know, if you've gained five pounds or yeah. whatever that is. And it's so true. Yeah. You know, they don't care. I think the difference though is maybe men don't generally date. Um, they don't, confidence is so beautiful and mm. so sexy. Yes. And I think, yes. I, you know, it's funny because so I be see. be confident at any size. But it's hard. You can't get confident. I've, I've found that it's like I could tell myself to be confident, but it's one of those things. I think you have to walk the path and let yourself be hurt. Yes. And then let yourself overcome the hurt it just it just takes time and it takes circumstances sometimes like you you know being in that Mm -hmm. in that um major with those specific professors who helped you I mean there are a lot of people who have not been so lucky and I Mm -hmm. hate to say it but I think a lot of it is luck and a lot of it is desperation and a willingness to trust another human with your eating yeah because for some of these women I'm sure taking a bite of bread is it's the last thing they Mm want to do it's mm-hmm. the scariest thing. Well, in that experience you had crying as you ate that I've seen that in my office, whether mm-hmm. we're just talking about it or if we're doing like a snack challenge. What's a su- snack challenge? And oh, can I take it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, when someone brings in their fear food to a session and they eat it in the session and we kind of mentally process it together. Mm-hmm. So I make it a really safe space for them to try that. So, you know, if it's a cookie or some peanut butter or whatever they're afraid to eat. They'll mm-hmm. bring it in and they'll eat it, you know, while we're having our normal session. And as, you know, anxiety starts to come up, we talk through it and say, okay, what are you feeling right now? And, you know, how does it taste? And also kind of doing a mindful eating exercise with it. So mm-hmm. what, what are all of your senses telling you about this? What are you tasting, feeling, smelling, and mm-hmm. trying to kind of ground them back into it yeah. and showing them that you can eat this thing and it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Like, look, you just, you just ate a spoonful of peanut butter. You didn't automatically gain 10 pounds. The mm-hmm. world didn't end. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no bad reactions going on. It was just peanut butter or whatever the food is, you yeah. know? And that's oftentimes the first step people need to really have that confidence of, okay, I ate this thing and I didn't start binging on it or I didn't gain a bunch of weight or whatever they're afraid of. Yeah. You and I talked on the phone about, um, I don't eat cane sugar. And I, I told you and you said, well, is it okay to talk about that? Cause I disagree. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we totally can. Um, you 
as you're talking about fear foods here, I'm like cocky thinking, I don't have any fear foods. And then you start talking (laughs) about it and it's like, oh no, I do. I don't think right now I could eat, um, like I don't eat cereal as close as I get is like muesli, which I eat every single morning. It helps Mm -hmm. me so much to have a regular breakfast, like Mm -hmm. one that I can just, the stuff's always in the fridge. You know, it just feels comfortable, like an old pair of jeans or something. Um, but yeah, cereal, I, the thought of that, it doesn't so much scare me as I feel like, you know, once again, everybody's body is different and trust me, I tested cereal for mm, 28 years. Um, and it just didn't work for me. And then there's other stuff like, I don't, I just don't eat cookies. They, there's something mental about, again, that sleeve of Oreos. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in high school, I would, we could leave campus for lunch and, uh, I would get from Albertsons like the small sheet cake for fourteen ninety nine and sit in my car and eat it really fast and then go back to class. If that isn't weird, what is, I, I say weird, but I know lots of people do it. Yep. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of age is, you know, I felt like I was the only one doing that, but I know lots of people do it now. But anyway, so the thought of tackling a sheet cake in your office <laughs> is well, like, I can't, yeah. I can't do that. And I have come to see that certain eating behaviors and certain foods I don't know that I'll ever be able to eat them, but it's one mm-hmm. day at a time. Yeah. And for today, I'm extremely content with my funky, no sugar added ice cream, which has chemicals in it that I know, like, I don't want to eat that, but I'd rather just eat ice cream and get over it. So yeah, I guess a little bit of a head case, but it really does. I've never been so happy, so content in my eating as I am now. And again, because of the business I'm in, I get to eat an awful lot of really quality food. Yes. So that makes me feel, it makes me feel alive. And I try to use all my senses as I eat it. And that's a win for me today. Awesome. Yeah. So fear food, maybe someday I'll come in and <laughs> you'll have a sheet yeah. cake that says happy fear food day, Jamie. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> I may have to do that. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, speaking of the positive side of things. So how do you eat today? I mean, how has it changed? I see on the cover of your book, you've got a bunch of macarons, which could you pick anything more festive and darling? Um, But yeah, how do you eat today? Uh, So that's two different questions I heard there. So the the book cover, first of all, there's nothing specific to the macarons. Uh, I wanted something colorful and I didn't want it to be, you know, most people will put a cookie or ice cream or cupcakes on their cover. Like if it's talking about food or binging, that tends to be the foods. And I'm like, I I told the cover artist, like, I want something colorful. Hmm. And this is what they came up with. I'm like, this is gorgeous. It's beautiful. I wanted it to look kind of luxurious, but still fun and quality. Yeah. Yeah quality like you said so it's you know I don't care if people eat Cheetos if they like them but if you're just eating something to eat something that's a difference so I mean I in an ideal world we would have great quality food around us all of the time and 
you know, we would be eating the things that we truly, truly love. Mm. Not everyone gets that and not everyone gets that every day. Like there are definitely days where I'm running out the door and I'm grabbing a protein bar just to shove something in my face. And, you know, everyone has those days. Other people don't have enough money and they're going to get whatever they can get. So I I don't want to stigmatize anyone by saying you can only eat quality ingredients. Mm -hmm. No, I get you. Blah, blah, blah. Um, You can eat anything. Again, I feel lucky. I mean, I just consider myself lucky. Oh, yeah. You have a great job. I do. (laughs) have a great job yeah um but how I eat today is uh really based on and I didn't know that I was doing this until after I read it um but based on the principles of intuitive eating and there are you know books out there on this there's a book called intuitive eating and Mm -hmm. it's by um Evelyn Triboli and Elise Reich I cannot wow look at you yeah um they are the founders of this movement um basically and it's basically you're ditching the diet mentality and you're trusting your body. And this, you know, it wasn't like one day I had an eating disorder and the next day I was intuitively eating. It right. was a it was a long process. But now I I'm really good about and it's not even just like eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full because mm-hmm. sometimes we eat not out of hunger. We yes. eat because it's there because the sourdough smells so good yeah. because it's a birthday party because because I'm bored. Yeah, because so, I'm uncomfortable. That's common for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily eating based on the hunger and fullness, but it is trusting my body. So I might not be hungry, but I'm also not going to just keep eating for the sake of eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll eat anything that I like. So I hate olives. I hate mushrooms. Girl, you uh, are missing out. I no, know. no, no, no. Um, I shouldn't you shame know. you. <laughs> and uh, I won't eat lamb because I had sheep as pets. But you know, like most foods, yeah. if it sounds good to me, I'll eat it. You know, mm-hmm. some days I don't want pasta. Other days I'm craving pasta. So, yeah. you know, it's like, it's, it's normal eating. Yeah. It's really what it is. It's, it's having that flexibility. It's, you know, eating five cookies one day and one the next, you yeah. know, and being okay with that. And it's very, very flexible. Um, I found that what works really well for my body and for a lot of people is having a lot of consistency with timing of food. Yes. So I know that, you know, if I'm eating my meals and snacks on a, you know, not rigid, but, you know, pretty, set time like a window yeah, yeah window of time I know that I'm not going to be starving and my body's yes. going to be functioning optimally and I'm going to have energy yeah. so that's pretty much how I eat now there's mm. there's not a lot of rules to it do you cook though I'm thinking about like what do you like to eat we know <laughs> mushrooms and olives are off the table but yes but like do you actively do you cook for mm, yourself that's a great question um I used to mm-hmm. um Two reasons I don't really cook much anymore. I'm I'm a great master of the five minute meal. Like I make a lot mm. of sandwiches and microwave nachos and stuff. Those are delicious. <laughs> they are. Uh, my husband loves to cook, and so does his whole family. So if we're gonna do something fancier, like if we're cooking, you know, meat or vegetables or something, he'll make that. Yeah. Um, because he loves doing that, and he loves to bake, and that's that's all his de-stressing stuff. Yeah. Um. And because he does so much of that and I'm cleaning up after him, I don't cook no, that much. No, I, I, I was telling somebody this morning at coffee that in our relationships, there are strengths and then mm-hmm. there are not strengths. Mm-hmm. And that's completely, I mean, you guys are, you know, divide and conquer. Yeah. yeah. And the other part is I'm just in a rush a lot of the time. Yeah. So constantly just making really quick stuff. Um, one of my go-to meals for the past year has been um, bread or toast with, peanut butter and banana Mm -hmm. and like that's quick easy it's filling yeah 
So delicious. Also, yeah. um, I ask everybody, what would you eat on your for your last meal? Mm. And I I just add one other thing is I don't eat sugar, and so I've been asked a couple times um, on your deathbed, would you just eat the cupcake? And the truth is, I wouldn't. Um, there are so many other things that I've grown to love more. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm curious about you. What would you eat? Oh, I'll see the intuitive eating piece of me is like, it depends on what I'm hungry for that day. Um, oh, you go with the flow. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. It, yeah, it truly depends. Um, cause I'm, I'm not very like set in my ways with food. Like some days I want warm food. Some days I want cold food. Mm-hmm. Some days I want like a sandwich. Some days I I don't know. I don't even know. I, I love different kinds of foods. Yeah. So that's such a hard question. Well, and especially for somebody who is very um, in tune with the moment. So mm-hmm. you would eat whatever felt good right then. Yeah. I yeah. would ask them for a menu right on my deathbed. You know, like, what, what can you bring me in the next 20 minutes? You know, <laughs> that is such a good answer. Way to not commit. I like it. Libby, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for sharing what you've been through and what you are about in San Luis Obispo. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for joining me on Consumed. To get the latest in what's going on with the podcast, sign up for the Consumed newsletter at letsgetconsumed.com or follow me on Instagram at Jamie C. Lewis. Until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis. Jamie Lewis.